This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part five of a seven-part series on managing business risk. This series is hosted by attorneys Dane Patrick and Mark Macias. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. This is Dane Patrick and Mark Macias with Langley and Manac. We're here on Series 2, Episode 5 of our podcast. During the last episode, we talked about what a business should do if it's served with a lawsuit. Today, we're going to talk about how your business can protect itself from damages and liability through careful drafting in its business contracts. So let's get started. Mark, uh, I want to take our listeners through the different types of damages that are recoverable in a lawsuit that could be filed against a business. Now, before we get started, you know, I'm, I'm guessing our listeners may be saying, well, why should I care about the topic today? Well, one reason they should care is because the types of damages and cases we're going to be talking about today could literally involve millions of dollars. And sure, a business may be able to have an attorney draft their contracts and put in these protective provisions that we're talking about. But oftentimes, the attorney doesn't think about all of these different issues. And we hope that we can educate the listener on asking the right questions. Not to mention, we're going to be talking about bet the company cases. And so this is a topic that every business owner should be educated about. So Mark, speaking of damages, what kinds of damages could a business be exposed to in a lawsuit involving a typical business transaction? Well, Dane, back in the day, you used to be able to rely upon a handshake for a contract. And in some cases, you can still rely upon a handshake for a contract. But more often than not today, you're going to want to have contracts that determine the business relationship with whoever you're dealing with. And in a typical case involving businesses, the usual claim is going to be, among other things, breach of contract. And the reason why breach of contract cases are, so, are complicated is because they involve a variety of potential damages, the first of which is attorney's fees. Now, attorney's fees can be as little as several thousand dollars, 
but attorney's fees can usually run into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars just on having the attorneys prosecute and defend the lawsuit for breach of contract. More recently, the Supreme Court has given us some particular guidance on how to go about proving attorney's fees. And in those cases, there are specific requirements now established by the Supreme Court that allows the attorney to obtain that amount of recovery for their client should they prevail on that breach of contract case. But beyond the issue of attorney's fees, we, there are general damages that are allowed for breach of contract cases. There are consequential damages, for example, that allow a party to recover damages that resulted from the incident that were a consequence of the incident that gave rise to the breach of contract. In addition, a party may recover economic damages. We call those actual damages. And typically, economic damages are things that you can readily assess. The loss of a business use, for example, if a particular project wasn't built in a timely fashion. But then beyond that, there are damages that uh, might arise in the nature of what we call exemplary damages. Now, exemplary damages are a different type of damage. They are allowed in circumstance when the behavior of the parties was so egregious that the court felt it appropriate to allow the jury to answer a question related to whether or not the particular incident arose from fraud or malice or gross negligence. And in those circumstances, if a jury says yes to that question, then punitive damages may be awarded against the offending company or person for having engaged in that type of egregious behavior. Those damages, setting aside attorney's fees, which as we already talked about, can go into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of of dollars, in general damages awards can add more thousands, more hundreds of thousands, more millions of dollars on top of that all. And so earlier when you're talking about bet the company cases, when all told these damages verdicts come back and result in judgments that could be into the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, that can be the difference between a company surviving the the litigation and not having to file bankruptcy and not. And so when you talk about the nature of business contracts and how you go about drafting contracts to protect the client, why don't you talk to us, Dane, about some examples that you have seen recently where the business was protected merely by virtue of the contract being drafted by an attorney knowing the law. Okay, Mark. Uh, One thing I would like to rehash just a little bit, you talked about punitive damages, you talked about breach of contract, and you talked about fraud. You're not saying that a business would be subjected to punitive damages solely for breaching a contract. Um, I'm guessing when you're talking about fraud in that example, you might be talking about where someone was fraudulently induced to enter into a contract? That's exactly right. And if there there was that finding by a court or a jury, then the defendant could be subjected to punitive or exemplary damages? That's exactly right, Dane. 
Okay, Mark, so let's talk a little bit now about how a company might protect itself from getting sued for punitive damages, for example, in a fraudulent inducement case. One of the things that I do, maybe it's just as, uh, maybe it's for my own education, if, if nothing more, but I publish a blog. It's called Texas Commercial Litigator blog. Uh, anyone can access it on the internet. And so what I do is I track all the significant cases that are coming out in the commercial litigation sector. And you know in Texas the the highest court is the Texas Supreme Court. So what I'd like to do today is talk about some of the cases that are in my blog where proper contractual drafting has literally saved a company tens of millions of dollars. So, for example, Mark, um, earlier this year there was a lawsuit up on appeal before the Texas Supreme Court involving IBM. In that particular lawsuit, an award of over $21 million was assessed against IBM. In this particular lawsuit, according to the record, a company named Lef Lufkin wanted to upgrade its business operations computer software system. So they turned to IBM and eventually they agreed to purchase a new system from IBM. And of course they had a written contract. Now this written contract mark had what they call a disclaimer clause. And that clause stated that Lufkin was not relying upon any representations by IBM not contained in the contract. So it sounds like legal gibberish so far, right? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why people come to lawyers is try to figure out the, the legal gibberish. Exactly. So what I want to kind of impress upon the listeners is why this clause was so important. You see, apparently, according to the plaintiff, the implementa implementation of the system, it didn't go well at all. I mean, it completely failed numerous tests. And Lufkin contended that IBM made numerous representations that the system would work and IBM would fix the problems. However, when the system went live, Mark, it failed and it literally crippled Lufkin's business. So. Lufkin sued IBM not only for breach of contract, but also for fraudulent inducement to enter that contract, kind of like we talked about earlier today. And the reason it was significant in this case was because of the damages. And it was because of the amount of damages that were eventually awarded by a jury against IBM for committing what the jury found to be fraud. I'm guessing it wasn't a couple of bucks. It wasn't a couple of bucks. The judgment was for $21 million. And here's the kicker. The jury found that that was for fraud and they found no damages on the breach of contract allegations. So at the end of the day, the plaintiff had a $21 million judgment against IBM for fraud and it went up to appeal and made its way all the way to the Texas Supreme Court. Well, Mark, uh, just to regress a little bit, typically when I get involved in these cases, it's after the fact. In other words, the damage has been done, the contract was drafted. 
and the client has been sued. And if I'm defending the client, the first thing I'm going to do in a case like this, I'm going to ask them to let me take a look at the contract and I want to see if there are any protective provisions in that contract, contract that would protect them from, for example, a fraud lawsuit. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court did. The Texas Supreme Court took a look at the underlying contract to see what it said. <clears throat> the Supreme Court said that one of the elements that must be proven to recover for fraud is that, that the plaintiff relied upon the fraudulent misrepresentations. In other words, you told me something, I believed it, and I acted on that misrepresentation. However, here was the good news for IBM. They had a lawyer that did a good job on their contract. They put what we talked about earlier, a disclaimer clause. And in that clause, the parties disclaimed that they were relying upon any representations outside of the agreement. What the Supreme Court says is that if you drafted your disclaimer clause the right way, you can literally protect your company from a fraudulent inducement to enter a contract claim. So if somebody tells you something, let's say for example the seller, before you enter the contract, they make, they make representations that turn out not to be true. You hear those representations, you say, you know, the seller sounds good, I'm signing this contract. But what they did in this case <clears throat> is if you put a clause, the Supreme Court says now, if you put a clause in your contract that says not only are you not relying upon any representations outside of the contract, but you make it crystal clear that you're disclaiming reliance <clears throat> on any of the specific rep uh, misrepresentations that might be at issue in the case, then you, that clause in the contract literally precludes a plaintiff from recovering on a fraudulent inducement claim. Well, Dane, that's all well and good. IBM, they can afford to have amazing lawyers draft these disclaimers and protect companies like IBM from a $21 million fraud judgment. But what would you say to Joe Smith, who has a little mom and pop shop, and how you can help him, in this case him, with his contracts to assist him in the same way that that lawyer assisted IBM? Well, Mark, it's not difficult to put in a specific disclaimer clause that says that the uh, buyer is not relying upon any representations that are not contained within the body of the contract. Um, there are a few things that the Supreme Court actually provided uh, for guidance as to when this kind of clause would be enforceable and one of the things it says is it needs to be an arm's length transaction where the contract is negotiated between the parties so you don't want to just hand somebody a border plate type of contract with lots of fine print that no one can see and say here take it sign this if you do that the Supreme Court or a court may say you know what it really wasn't fair the way you negotiated this contract I mean you had this little bitty uh, print it needs to be just very clear uh, what's put in the contract that there is that the parties agree that they can't rely upon any representations that are not contained within the body of the contract. 
Now, Dane, you used a term of art called arm's length transaction. Uh, why don't you explain to our listeners what that means uh, in that legal term of art you used? Okay. Uh, typically, an arm, you know, what, uh, here's an example. Um, in, in the insurance world that you're involved in, Mark, um, the carrier typically has a substantial amount of knowledge, and the consumer who buys the policy often doesn't have near the knowledge of the carrier. So you've got one party that's very sophisticated and one party, especially if it's you know someone buying a homeowner's policy, that's not all that sophisticated in insurance. And so the Supreme Court will also often imply certain protections like duties of good faith in order to protect the person who maybe not, is not quite as sophisticated. So typically in a business transaction, it should be at an arm's, an arm's length transaction. Both parties should have a level of sophistication in going into the transaction that they kind of understand what they're doing. So the only, the only way I could see where that might not be an arm length transaction is you, if you had one incredibly large company and another smaller company was highly dependent upon that company and a large company was just literally cramming down contracts, cramming them down these small businesses' throats saying, sign it, take it or leave it, or we're not doing business. That probably wouldn't be an arm's length transaction. So even if you're a big business, you should be hesitant to engage in that kind of behavior because you literally may be shooting yourself in the foot. So Mark, we talked about one type of clause that can protect a business from liability, which is the disclaimer reliance upon representations outside of the contract. You know, earlier you talked about punitive damages, and so what about putting clauses in the contract that limit the types of damages that a party can recover? Have you seen those kinds of clauses in a contract? Yes, in fact, many insuring agreements themselves have exclusions for punitive damages. In other words, the insurance company is saying, we will cover you, we will indemnify you for the actual damages that we talked about earlier, the economic losses that are judged against you. But in the event that you, the insurer, engage in either fraud or malice or gross negligence, then those are circumstances under which the insurance policy will not provide indemnity or coverage for you. So you want to be very careful in the type of insurance policy that you get and make sure that you read it over appropriately to at least attempt to ensure that you're going to uh, obtain insurance coverage which covers you for eventualities and what we've seen is is that for limitation of liability clauses while they are also uh, very common in these insuring agreements they are also common in business contracts aren't they Dane? Yes they are Mark can you think of any examples, uh, recent examples, where you had a business contract that specifically excluded um, punitive damages for uh, things such as malice, fraud, or gross neglect? Mark, I, I see limitation of damages clauses all the time in contracts. Um, you'll of, often see these, for example, in construction contracts, a lot of times you'll see limitation of damages clauses where there's a waiver, for example, of, of not only punitive damages, but maybe consequential damages. And 
Even recently, there was a Texas Supreme Court case that addressed a clause just like this involving punitive damages. And, you know, as our former, in our former example, we were talking about the IBM case. That was a $27 million verdict. And by the way, the Supreme Court did overturn that verdict. And at the end of the day, it, there was the plaintiff with, was left with nothing. Now, I will say this with the Supreme Court. I think they were trying to be fair. And they said, you know what? I don't know why there was a zero damages finding on the breach of contract. You'll need to go back to the trial court and see if there were any damages for breach of contract. But just for an example, by having a proper uh, provision, contractual provision in that case, IBM wiped out a $27 million verdict. Well, there's been a string of cases like that this year with the Texas Supreme Court. And I think we discussed this earlier in, a, in one of our s series. Texas has a reputation of being very pro-business, and we have a, a Supreme Court right now who looks strictly at contracts and will try to avoid go going outside of the four corners of a contract to impose any liability on a party when it arises out of contractual arrangement. And for example, in another Supreme Court case, uh, the Texas Supreme Court this year reversed a $5 million fraud award for punitive damages. And in this particular case, it was because of a limitation of liability clause. This case, Mark, it was uh, involved uh, Bombardier Aerospace uh, versus another company. And the plaintiffs sued the defendant not only for breach of contract, but also for fraud. It involved the purchase of a Challenger 300 aircraft for $20 million. So like we talked about earlier, these cases often involve a substantial amount of money. But Mark, in this case, the purchase agreement contained a limitation of liability clause under which the plaintiff agreed to waive their rights to recover punitive damages. Well, the jury found that the defendants had committed fraud in this transaction. They awarded the plaintiff two point, almost $2.7 million in actual damages, but more significantly, significantly they awarded the plaintiff $5.4 million in punitive damages. Well, the case made its way up all the way to the Texas Supreme Court, which end up reversing the award regarding the portion of the judgment for punitive damages. In other words, they threw out the $5 million plus in punitive damages. And here's the reason why. They said that the plaintiffs waived their rights under the contracts to recover punitive damages. And what was interesting is the court held that generally contractual limitation of damages clauses are valid and enforceable. This is law, the court said this is a law even when a party to the contract commits fraud. What I think is interesting about this case is the court seems very receptive to any type of limit, limitation of damages clauses in a contract. So if you're a business, for example, and you're selling maybe your business assets, maybe you're selling some really expensive equipment, I would want to talk to my attorney about seriously thinking about putting in limitation 
of damages clauses in that contract. Obviously, if you're a buyer, you're going to probably be trying to negotiate your way, or, way around that, but I think often parties are willing to concede at least punitive damages in, in their agreements. So, Mark, uh, let's talk about a little bit of a different subject, which I see arise in contracts all the time, and frankly, I'm a little bit torn over this subject. Uh, years ago, and the subject I'm talking about is arbitration. Years ago, I think the knee-jerk reaction by a lot of attorneys were that if you're representing a big business, arbitration is good because you're always concerned about what a jury may do um, if that big business is sued. Of course, there are many different ways to avoid even having to go before a jury. You've got you can have a waiver of jury uh, clause in your contract. So. What do you believe the pros and cons are of having an arbitration clause in your contracts? Well, Dane, as you talked about with the Texas Supreme Court and its uh, desire to try to enforce the agreements as written in an effort to limit damages, uh, the Texas Supreme Court and other courts have also tended to favor arbitration clauses that are included in contracts between parties. And an arbitration clause basically requires the party to forego a jury trial. So before we talk about the specifics of an arbitration clause, let's talk about a jury trial. Uh, in Texas, you typically have uh, two lower court levels. The first is a county court, uh, and the second is a district court. Now, this is not intended to minimize the justice of the peace courts or the small claims courts. Uh, because you too can have juries under those circumstances. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of the cases that you and I tend to work on are going to be the county courts and the district courts. The county courts require you to have six jurors, although there are in some counties provisions that allow you to ask for 12. And of the six jurors, five out of the six jurors have to agree on the answers to all the questions. So in other words, in civil litigation, like the type that you and I routinely find ourselves in, you don't have to have unanimity from the jury in order to render a verdict in a case. The same five or six, excuse me, the same five or six have to agree on the answers to all the questions in order for you to have a valid verdict. In district court, you have 12. And of 12, you need to have 10 of the jurors agree on all of the questions. And so from a jury verdict perspective in breach of contract cases or in, in other circumstances, tort cases like we find ourselves uh, defending at this firm, um, you typically will have jurors answering the questions that the judge asks that uh, require them to make the findings of the fact. Tell us what you, the jury, found with regard to whether or not a breach of contract occurred, for example. Well, an arbitration clause takes that circumstance completely out of the picture. And though you can have arbitration panels where more than one person decides a case, typically speaking, you're going to have one person. He, he or she is the sole judge, the sole juror. And that person is listening to the evidence in much the same way that a jury would. 
and rendering a decision based upon the facts of the case and the law applicable to that case. Many uh, people have the idea that uh, jurors may not be in a position to evaluate the more complicated cases like we talked about earlier involving Bombardier. Uh, I don't happen to be of that opinion, but that opinion is out there. And because of that, arbitration clauses started finding their way into contracts to take this, these cases away from the jury and have them decided by a single arbiter, or as I said earlier, a panel of arbiters. And ultimately, when that person makes the decision, that decision is usually final and it's usually binding. And that one person can make a decision on whether or not there was a breach of contract, on whether there was a limitation of liability clause or a disclaimer clause, like we've talked about earlier in our podcast. And that one person will decide the entire case. Well, surely if I'm a party to arbitration, I have the right to appeal that person's decision, don't I? In some circumstances, you are allowed to appeal that person's decision. In many circumstances, you can include provisions within the arbitration clause itself that makes that person's decision final and binding. So more often than not, my rights to appeal will be very limited. Is that correct? Yes, if you have the right attorney drafting the right arbitration clause for you. And so that's where it becomes more important for that Joe Smith and that mom and pop shop that we talked about earlier to hire the right person to draft the right agreements and include the correct provisions so that that attorney can best protect the interest of his client or her client. What kind of costs are involved in arbitration? Let's take an example where you have a AAA type clause. Uh, that's not the arbitration body, the AAA arbitration body. You have that clause in your agreement and it and it calls for three arbitrators, another a panel like you talked about. Who pays for those arbitrators? What kind of cost are we talking about? Are, are these like paying three attorneys? What is it? What, what are the costs involved? The short answer is it depends. Uh, the AAA uh, organization that you spoke about earlier is one of many arbitration associations that uh, can be called for specifically in the contract. In other words, the arbitration clause within the contract mandates that a particular association be utilized in order to determine the case. Uh, some uh, folks like to use AAA, other folks use other organizations. But the long and the short of it is, is that within that body, within that association, there are usually going to be numerous arbitrators from whom the parties can select. And the cost of that arbitrator is going to depend upon that particular person and what that person has in their agreement with AAA, for example. Um, I've seen circumstances when the amount of the arbitrator varied. It could be a flat rate of a particular amount. It could be an hourly rate. It could depend upon the number of hours that that arbitrator spends hearing a matter. It might depend upon the number of hearings that that arbitrator has to hear. Um, but one thing is sure, the cost of arbitration usually pale in comparison to the cost of litigation. While discovery is allowed in arbitration, and discovery, as we mentioned earlier, can be very, very expensive in these cases, uh, the amount that one would spend in arbitration is usually going to be less than they would spend in a county court or in a district court system.
And I guess it often depends on the size of the uh, lawsuit at hand. In other words, if, if you have a forty or $50,000 case, arbitration may not make that much sense, especially in the, our example where you have three arbitrators and you may be paying that much in arbitration fees. But maybe on the flip side, if you have a really large case, then all of a sudden the arbitration costs are relatively small compared to what's at stake. Right. Yeah. The cases are going to vary, and the decision on whether or not to pursue an arbitration is going to rest with the party that has the contract for arbitration. Uh, that person, if a lawsuit is filed in state court, for example, would, would file a pleading with the state court asking them to put a hold or a stay on the, the pending state court litigation and instead refer the matter to arbitration. So there are decision points that allow a party to decide whether to utilize arbitration or not. The cost barrier might be an effective decision point that prevents a case from going into arbitration. But usually when cases are going into arbitration, it's not the forty or $50,000 damage variety that we're talking about, although that's certainly possible. It's usually the forty and $50 million cases that uh, find themselves in arbitration. And so the amount of costs associated with that kind of litigation uh, in arbitration will be, in my view, significantly reduced. And Mark, uh, another way, now parties are often that are entering into uh, a business transaction often don't want a jury for whatever reason, uh, and I'm, I'm not commenting one, one way or another on this, on this determination, but some parties just are leery or, or uh, concerned about having a jury decide a complex business dispute. There are other ways, aren't there, other than just having binding arbitration where that can be accomplished? For, for example, maybe you have a waiver of a jury provision in your contract. Sure. Um, you know, the courts tend to favor juries uh, when they are um, utilized to resolve differences. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we, we have juries, right? Uh, the Constitution of the United States under Amendment 6, the Sixth Amendment, allows for juries to decide civil cases like the ones we're dealing with. And so there is a favor, uh, there is a predisposition to favor juries over other scenarios. However, there is a possibility for you to f limit the ability of a jury to hear a case based upon the type of contract that is written uh, to take that out of the hands of the jury. And so there again, we go back to the idea of having the right lawyer draft your contracts to include provisions that could include a waiver of a jury and could include a choice of law, could include a disclaimer, could include a, a limitation of liability that all help to minimize the amount of potential liability that a business faces based upon that uh, particular contract. And so if I have a waiver of jury trial provision in my contract, that means we're agreeing to submit the case before a judge, correct? Right. And so in that circumstance, although we would be in court, uh, the judge is in many ways going to act like an arbitrator would in an arbitration. The judge will he himself or herself make the findings of fact and the conclusions of law and then apply those findings of fact and conclusions of law to any judgment that particular judge finds 
in that particular uh, case. And ultimately, um, it's going to be very similar to an arbitration in that one person, not six or not 12 in the case of a county court case or a district court case, that is going to be the ultimate decider of that case. Now one difference is, is if we have a bench trial before a judge, uh, the party that loses the case would have the right to appeal. That is absolutely true. We talked earlier about the circumstances in arbitration that do allow for appeals, but more often than not, in an arbitration, it's going to be a binding arbitration. That decision, whatever the decision made by that arbitrator, is going to be final as to that case. In a case of a waiver of jury where the judge is making the decision, much like in cases where you have a six-member jury panel in the case of a county court or a 12-member jury panel in the case of a district court, those decisions are appealable. They are reviewable by the next level of appeals courts, which is the court of appeals, or the court above that, which in our civil system is the Texas Supreme Court. Now, Dane, we've talked about uh, a lot of circumstances under which a business can utilize uh, effective provisions within their contracts in order to limit their liability. What other things do you see that can be utilized for, for doing the same thing and including specific provisions within the contract? So Mark, uh, the other provisions we see, then these are usually hotly contested, are what they call indemnity provisions. And a, a prime example of when we see these provisions and is in the in construction contracts. And these indemnity provisions are often tied into insurance requirements in the contract. And the reason these clauses are hotly contested is, is it shifts the risk of something happening from one party to another. So for example, in the situation where you have a general contractor and a subcontractor on a construction project, the general contractor may say that, hey, if there are any injuries that occur while you're working out there and they're connected to your work in any manner whatsoever, you have to indemnify me. You have to cover me if I get sued. You have to pay for my cost of defense. You have to pay for any claims that might be made against me that arise out of your work, subcontractor. Well. You know, maybe uh, at first blush, it, it, that sounds reasonable. I mean, in other words, if it's connected to the subcontractor's work, shouldn't they be responsible for the damages? But where it gets, where it gets tricky, Mark, is the clauses that say that you will indemnify me even if I'm at fault, Mr. Subcontractor. I don't care if I injure one of your employees or somebody else and it's connected to your work, you're going to cover that claim and you're going to pay for my cost of defense. So Mark, um, I'm sure you see these clauses a lot in, in, in your sector. So are these clauses enforceable? If, if somebody, if the general contractor tells the subcontractor, you have to pay claims made against me even if I'm, I'm at fault, are those indemnity provisions actually enforceable? Believe it or not, the short answer to the question is yes, but it depends. Uh, the Supreme Court has taken a look at these indemnity provisions and before we talk about the indemnity provisions that we find in these kind of contracts, you know, there we go again using the word indemnity. And in our previous podcast, we've been using indemnity to describe what an insurance policy will do to cover you for an event. 
under those circumstances, that too is indemnity. Under these circumstances, indemnity also means cover me, but it doesn't uh, tie itself necessarily to an insurance policy, but to the contract itself. And so let's talk about indemnity and why it depends on whether or not it will cover the contractor, in your example, against even its own claims of negligence for an incident. The Supreme Court has looked at these risk-shifting policies. In other words, I'm shifting the risk from the general contractor to the subcontractor and said that is permissible. However, the Supreme Court has specifically said that if you want to do that in your contracts, we will allow it, but we will only allow it where the contract itself is conspicuousness. Is conspicuous. So, in other words, by conspicuous, you may mean that that part of the contract has uh, print all in all caps and it's bold lettering so that it stands out from all the other provisions in the contract correct that's exactly right and so many times you and I have seen contracts where the provision is not conspicuous in other words the contract itself looks identical in every facet of the contract every single provision has the same font size every single provision has the same title in in one bold lettering for the title for that particular provision and everything else is regular font. What the Supreme Court has said in this conspicuousness test is they are asking judges to look at these contracts and determine if the indemnity provision is so conspicuous that a person of ordinary intelligence in looking at this contract would be able to tell that that's an important provision. And so for that reason, it's vitally important that you have an attorney that knows how the courts are looking at these provisions so that that person can then incorporate that knowledge into the contracts by making the indemnity clause conspicuous. If it is not conspicuous, courts have struck indemnity. So all of that effort, all of that money that you spent on the lawyer that didn't draft a conspicuous indemnity is for naught. It all goes out the window and now that company is potentially on the hook for their negligence in, that resulted in an injury to somebody. Having the right lawyer draft these documents makes all the difference. Okay, let's talk, talk about some examples, just real simple examples. So let's say I'm a general contractor and in my subcontract agreement I put in a paragraph that says something to the effect that the subcontractor will indemnify me, the general contractor, against any bodily injury claims that arise out of the subcontractor's work, period. And that's all it says. If I, the general contractor, cause a bodily injury to someone because of my negligence that pertains to that contract, is the subcontractor in that example going to have to indemnify me for my own negligence? I'm going to say no. Uh, although every case is different and every court and judge can specifically look at that what we call an express negligence test to determine if that contract sufficiently provides the coverage that that 
contractor is hoping for, generally speaking, contracts also require sufficient detail to further allow the person that is going to have to indemnify the contractor to know that that is what is being covered. So by express negligence, you mean it needs to say something like, and I agree to indemnify you even for your own negligence, right? That's exactly right. So if I have a clause that says something like, the subcontractor agrees to indemnify the general contractor for any bodily injury claims that arise out of the subcontractor's work, even if the general contractor is solely negligent. And in, in that, that part, the express negligence language is in large lettering, bold lettering. Would the subcontractor have to indemnify the general contractor for the general contractor's negligence if something arose out of the subcontractor's work on that job that can pertain to that bodily injury claim? Well, now your example in that situation is a lot more specific. Your example also passes the conspicuousness test because it is far more conspicuous in that part of the uh, contract and in any other part of the contract, your specific example also addresses the issue of express negligence and sole negligence. Under those circumstances, because that attorney was um, intelligent about the way they drafted that contract and they knew what courts are requiring, that attorney protected his client against claims even of his own client's making. Now let's talk about if I'm a subcontractor and I find myself in a situation where I, I can't negotiate that out of the contract, maybe I can have them water down the language a little bit, but what do I do to make sure that I'm covered from an insurance standpoint if in fact there is an accident on the job and not only do I get sued because of a bodily injury claim, but also the general contractor gets sued. Is there some kind of insurance that I can procure that will protect me? Well, Dane, the answer to your question is yes, of course there's other things that you can do to protect the company. And one of them would be to purchase a contractual liability coverage. And this coverage would indemnify that company from any claims related to a breach of contract claim, for example. You know, now that we're on the topic of indemnity again, uh, I think that there are other things that a company can do to protect the company even further. And that is, um, in many instances, a general contractor is going to require that they be listed as an additional insured under the policy of the subcontractor. And so even though the subcontractor is the entity that has gone out and purchased the insurance policy to protect them from any and all claims, even though there's this provision that requires the subcontractor to indemnify the general contractor from any and all claims, including the general contractor's employees' negligence like we've talked about earlier, an additional insured provision requires that the subcontractor name the general contractor as an additional insured. In other words, it is as if that general contractor also is an insured under that insurance policy and that general contractor now has the benefit of the subcontractor's insurance policy for the indemnity 
that might result from an incident as well as the defense costs. And as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, those can run into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So let me get this straight. There's two basic ways that in our example, the subcontractor can have insurance in place to protect the subcontractor as well as the general contractor. One way is that the commercial general liability policy would have contractual liability coverage, which basically means that if the subcontractor agreed to indemnify the general contractor and that provision in the contract kicks in, then the contractual liability coverage would apply, correct? That's correct. And then the other way is to add the general contractor as an additional insured on the subcontractor's policy, correct? That's true. Uh, Now, you always want to run that provision uh, by your insurance agent because your insurance agent is going to be the one that is selling you the coverage. But by and large, these provisions requiring additional insureds to be listed in the insurance policy are things that we see routinely for, in our example, the contractor in general and subcontractor circumstances. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, So that concludes this episode on different ways that a business can protect itself with various contractual provisions. Um, During our next episode, we're going to be talking about some real-world examples of cases that Mark and I have handled that apply the principles we talked about in our previous episodes. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dane. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.